Hey everybody, welcome back to the Car Tech Garage, where Max and myself keep cars interesting every week, and for you, another week in automotive history. What's up, Max? Yes, it is. Yes, indeed it is. Wonderful Saturday morning, ready for some history. Max is a little bit tired. I've had a coffee for the first time in a long time. I'm speaking yeah, quickly. Yeah, I was up a little late last night, <laughs> doing some painting. painting. Not on cars. Yeah, exactly. Believe it or Get not, some housework I done. don't just work on cars. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and kick it off. October 3rd, 2004, just 17 short years ago, the late, great Dale Earnhardt Jr. took the win at the EA Sports 500 at Talladega Super Speedway. Now, during the television interview in Victory Lane, Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s response to a question included an expletive. So uh, following the precedent set earlier that year for you know NASCAR retaining its image, NASCAR docked Earnhardt ten thousand dollars in twenty five championship points, dropping him from first to second in the standings. So he cursed on live television, and they slapped him on the wrist hard. <laughs> oh man, that's great! I know uh, it's not though. <laughs> Wait, they even docked him points. Yeah, on they this docked him too? points at everything. Wow. I mean, it's one thing to get a fine, but dock points. Exactly. They put him from first to second in the standings. It's crazy. <laughs> All right. October 4th, 1916, 105 years ago, the Henry Ford Trade School officially opened in Hyde Lake Park, Michigan. Now, the school trained teenage boys in a variety of skilled industrial trade work, you know, machining, metallurgy, drafting, engine design, among others. Um, and Ford uh, even implemented a mandatory savings plan for the boys. At first, that the school actually started out as a totally free trade school. The boys were responsible for their own academic schooling outside of the trade school afterwards. And eventually, the Henry Ford Trade School ended up offering academic classes as well. And he actually paid the students for their working hours as a scholarship, going towards the cost of their books and supplies. So that was pretty neat. Um, but it was just so cool that he mandated a savings plan. Like he really did his best to set these boys up, not just to potentially work for him and do a great job, but really to have a good skill set and be able to make it in life and, you know, know about saving and, and everything else. It was really, really neat how he was kind of helping these boys get a, a significant leg up at the turn of the century. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it is. I mean, I know there's a lot of trade schools nowadays, but it's nowhere near as prominent per capita as it used to be. And Ford even still is at the forefront of training technology. Oh, they really are. I mean, they, they probably do some of the best hands-on technician training of any automotive manufacturer. And I, I confidently say that knowing what I know. Um, and, and the cool part is Henry didn't even establish a contract for them to work for him after the, I mean, they could leave and go wherever they want and it was no harm, no foul. Which that in itself is something you don't typically see. Exactly. All right. October 5th, 1919, 101 years ago on this day, a 21-year-old Enzo Ferrari made his racing debut. Didn't win. He got 11th in a hill climb race in Italy, uh, driving a CMN race car. Now, Ferrari, of course, ended up becoming a professional driver after World War One, and he ended up joining again with CMN in Milan as a test and racing driver in 1919. CMN, by the way, it stands for Construzione Meccanique Nationale, an Italian automotive firm for the period. Um, the following year, he moved to Alfa Romeo, which, of course, everybody knows he established a pretty long-lasting relationship, you know, over 20 years. Um, and that career took him from test driver to director of the Alfa Romeo Racing Division. In 1929, he ended up founding Scuderia Ferrari, an organization that began uh, truly uh, kind of modestly mm -hmm. as just a, a small racing club. 
And by 1933, Scuderia Ferrari had entirely taken over the engineering racing division of Alfa Romeo. In 1940, Ferrari transformed the Scuderia into an independent manufacturing company, and he called it the Auto Avio Construzione Ferrari. Now, of course, um, World War II happened, and the Ferrari, you know, name right there kind of mm-hmm. died down. But he brought it back up when he reformed Scuderia Ferrari. And, of course, his first one came out in 1947, the 125S. Pretty pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Pretty cool. It's really cool. So, of course, you know, that began a 40-year stampede of racing victories, you know, 25 world titles, thousands of events at different racetracks in the world. One beautiful, beautiful automobiles and a legacy that certainly will remain as a a very Mm -hmm. heavily imprinted mark on automotive history forever. No question at all. No question at all. October 6, 1959, 61 years ago, Mr. Mickey Thompson. Yeah. Of Mickey Thompson racing tires, driving the challenger one set a land speed record for automobile engine powered vehicles, 363.67 miles an hour. And you notice I said automobile engine powered vehicles because the current record holder was Sir George Aston and, or sorry, no, John Cobb, not Sir George Aston. The current record holder was John Cobb and he went 390 some in a Railton special. And that was a airplane engine car. So the cool part about Mickey Thompson driving this, he actually went out with this car and by the way, it had four Pontiac V8s. What? Yeah. Pontiac <laughs> what? shipped this man four V8s on, in a crate to his garage, and he had to figure out how to mount them all up to a land speed car. So they named this car the Challenger 1. Pontiac literally just loaned him four engines. And he went to try this run, and he was expecting 400 miles an hour. Now, he ended up meeting another very prominent land speed record racing legend, Sir George Aston. That's why I got it mixed up. He ended up running into Sir George Aston. And before he even made the run, George Aston looked at the car and he had been lying to everybody about the power figures all day, about how much this thing, how much power it made and all this stuff. Cause it was all under a closed body shell. Cause he didn't want anybody to, to really be able to guess him. Mm-hmm. But realizing that Aston was a no BS kind of guy and somebody who had been there, done that. And he had already worn the shoes that Mickey Thompson was trying to walk in. He told him all the truth. George quickly pulled out a notepad, started writing all this stuff down, and he looked back at the car, looked back at Mickey, and said, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not exact, but roughly what you're looking at, you're going to need another three to 400 horsepower easy to make 400 miles an hour. You're probably in the 360 range. He went out and ran 363 miles an hour. <laughs> and was probably more concerned that how did he get that close to my mile an hour? Exactly. Now, the cool news is he came back the next year, with these Pontiac engines being supercharged. So he found a way. And he beat 400 miles an hour, <laughs> becoming the first person to do so. Crazy. It's pretty crazy. cool, right? Pretty cool. All right, October 7th, 1913, 107 years ago, Mr. Camille Genazzi, who was the first man to travel 60 miles an hour, died and not in a car. Well, he did die in a car, but the cause of his dying wasn't because of the car. So oh. let's back up here. Camille Genazzi, he was the first person to drive over 60 miles an hour, and he drove an electric car named the La Gemme Content. And that means the never satisfied in French. And it was an electric torpedo looking car. He sat on top of the darn thing. It looked like, it literally looked like a, a small torpedo mounted on a ladder that had four wheels. 
looked scary, terrifying. He almost like straddled it, it had a, a driver's compartment, but you know, your, mm-hmm. your knees stuck out of it. You basically put your feet and your butt into it and you controlled it with your hands. <laughs> um, anyway, so he was uh, again, a land speed record holder in the early 1900s. He actually won the 1903 Gordon Bennett cup trophy, which was a, about the biggest race in the world at the time. Now here's how he died. He went on a hunting expedition with a couple of his buddies. And one night he thought himself to be a comedian. They were all out on a wild boar hunt. And this genius goes behind a bush and starts making boar noises as a prank on his friends. His friend turn around and one of him shoots into the bushes thinking that it's a wild boar shooting Camille Janazzi and fatally wounding him. What? Jeez. Now he didn't die right away. They loaded him into the car and started driving away, trying to drive to the hospital, but he, he died well before. And what's the really weird part is he really liked Mercedes and he always had this weird prophecy that he would always tell everybody that he's going to die in a Mercedes automobile one day. And guess what the car he was riding to the hospital was? Mercedes. Yes. <laughs> that's you, great. you don't have to be a genius to like going fast people. I think that's the moral of the story here. All right, moving forward, October 8th, 1978, 42 years ago, the Mr. Mario Andretti became Formula One world champion. Pretty important thing because he's only one of three drivers to win races in Formula One, IndyCar, World Sports Car Championship, and NASCAR. There's only two other people that have won races all through those, mm-hmm. let alone Mario Andretti being a Formula One world champion and an IndyCar champion and everything. I mean, he, he's an incredible driver, one of the most versatile ever. The only other drivers to ever equal what he's done are Dan Gurney and Juan Pablo Montoya mm-hmm. to win Two. races. And, um, of course, Montoya had never been a full world champion in formula one, mm-hmm. either. but it, nonetheless, they're all incredibly talented, but I just think that's really, really cool. All right. So October 9th, 1983, the last one up for this week, the Pettygate scandal, the petty, the Pettygate scandal. scandal. So October 9th, 1983, 37 years ago, Richard Petty won the Miller High Life 500, which was 198th career Winston Cup race. Very impressive. Now, during the post-race inspection, his car failed, found to have illegal tires and an oversized, overpowered engine, among other small things. Now, Petty ended up getting fined $35,000 thousand dollars and he only won 40,000 from the race um, and docked 104 championship points Jeez, basically please. effectively ruling him out now they kept the race victory but they basically ruled him out of the championship for this year now the incident created a lot of friction in the petty team the petty um you know family racing team so petty left petty enterprises at year's end he took his stp sponsorship and number 43 with him drove for mike curb for the next two seasons and obviously the rest is history but you know, even after this, during his 200th win, 200th win came on July 4th, the president was there and everything else. And he won that in spectacular fashion. And everybody was still trying to say that, oh, well, he's, he's still cheating. He's still cheating. He's still cheating. But the fact is he was caught this one time. It was a huge scandal. I don't know that he would be dumb enough mm-hmm. to do that again, because he's not a stupid guy. No. And you can't honestly say, yeah, and this was also, keep in mind, this was during the time he wasn't the only one cheating. 
Everybody no. <laughs> was cheating. Everybody was cheating all over the place right yeah. then. And, and he was just the best at it. <laughs> and finally got caught. <laughs> exactly. Definitely got caught. Now it was blatant cheating. It wasn't like bending in the rules. Um, but that's the thing, you know, regardless of what equipment he had, you know, it wasn't on that consistent of a basis that he always had the best car out there. But I mean, he's won over 200 races in NASCAR. That's so impressive. Why, why would you question his actual capability? I don't know. Quick trivia question. What was the name of the person that drove a disguised V8 version of a 1956 Corvette up Pikes Peak in 1955 to take the stock car record? I'll wait 10 seconds. Mm. Got nothing. Zora Arcus Duntov, the father of the Corvette. Well, the modern Corvette. Modern Corvette. Yeah, they initially came out with the uh, the EXP version of it. Chevrolet did at the Motorama. And then they couldn't really sell it very well. It only came with the Blue Flame 6. And Zor Arcus Duntoff got hired on. And he's like, let's put a V8 in it. Genius. Yeah. Genius. Why not? Absolutely. Well, that's been This Week in Automotive History. Hope everyone has enjoyed it. Max and I, of course, will be back next week. And we have been recording some more to drive or not to drive the cars we love and the cars that we don't. Um, and yeah. Uh, on our previous podcast, we were talking about murder mystery in the automotive industry. Yeah. Never know. We should Maybe that we'll do that. We should do that. Maybe we will. But thanks everybody so much for listening Appreciate to the Car Tech Garage. And, uh, and, and make sure to give us a rating on, on oh, Apple, yeah. Spotify, yeah, rate us. please. That seriously helps us out, you know, so much with the ratings and, you know, appreciate you guys as listeners. And once again, thank you. Yeah. You guys are the best. Thanks so much. Bye. See you next time.